Well, the book of Habakkuk says in chapter 2 that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. I can't think of a greater way to begin our chapel and begin this week than singing that song. So thanks to Elizabeth and Fang for that. Well, we have been exploring throughout the semester what it means to be people who seize opportunities to walk through the great doors of effective service that God has for us. And to uh, kind of to move into that direction, we have offered opportunities for us to hear from a variety of people who have seized the opportunities and walked through great doors. And again, today, we have the opportunity to hear from someone. His name is Corey Magstad. He is a husband and a father and a ministry strategist. He is the founder and director of Launch Ministries. Would you help me welcome Corey Magstad? Corey graduated from here in 2001. I just found that out this that morning. I didn't, I didn't realize what the time frame was that. So I, didn't, I intentionally didn't say much about Launch Ministries and what you're doing so that you can give us a firsthand experience or a testimony of that. What is Launch Ministries? Yes, we started Launch uh, about five and a half years ago. Um, and we started kind of in response to seeing youth group kids from our church uh, struggling to enter adulthood. And so we, we looked at them and we saw that they were just floundering and that they were struggling with, with figuring out what to do as a 20-something. And they were disconnected from the church, disconnected from life. A lot of them were struggling at school and just really were just floundering as the word stuck would maybe be a better word. And so we said, well, let's, let's do something. We thought, let's start a Bible study. And um, at that Bible study, we, we saw that there was huge struggles with addiction and meth and all sorts of like kids having kids and, and struggling with jobs and homelessness. And um, we just said, you know, we've got to do something more than kind of youth group for 20-year-olds. And so um, that was kind of the birthplace. And so out of that, then, um, we now have a weekly Bible study support group. We have a Celebrate Recovery ministry. We have a homeless youth drop-in center, um, really targeting homeless youth and young adults in the Southwest Metro with support services. Um, we have some transitional housing um, and kind of other things. But basically working with 18 to 25-year-olds that are struggling. So the bulk of your ministry really revolves around uh, a, a population similar to this as far as age and transition, yep. obviously some different issues that they may be dealing with, but very similar population, it sounds Absolutely. like. Yeah. Yep. And so when you start a ministry like this, uh, you know, you have to go kind of maybe wrestling through, like, is this the right time and the right ministry? How did you kind of decide that God was calling, calling you to this kind of ministry? Yeah, so previously I'd been a church planter, so I was the pastor of a, uh, the River Church, so a lot of you know Rob Mapstone, he's the pastor of that church now. Um, yeah, give him a hand, everyone loves Rob. <laughs> um, and um, I'd been there for eight years, and... Uh, Personally, uh, my wife and I were struggling. We were feeling like uh, we didn't know where and how to take the church to where it needed to be. We were feeling like we were in a time of transition as a church and um, weren't sure if we really fit into the next phase of the church. And, um, and yet we didn't really feel like it was necessarily the right time to leave either. So we were just really stuck um, ourselves. And that's about the time that we had this sort of Bible study thing start. And um, so we went, actually I went home from that first Bible study, um, which we had done with kind of in partnership with some of our um, friends in the community, another youth pastor, um, another, actually, youth pastor who graduated from here, Andrew Peterson Skin, some of you might know him. Um, so I went home from that Bible study, and I just talked to my wife, and I said, hey, I, I really feel like maybe this is the next thing for us, and um, I think the, the key thing for us was um, discerning together, um, talking to each other, praying with each other, talking to some other people to see, does, does this make sense to start a nonprofit? How do you do that? Figuring out, like, all the, the logistics of it. Um, and I think together, be, between the two of us and, and um, Skins in particular, and then a few other people that are in my life, I, I think um, that process of communal discernment was really the, the piece that, that helped us to determine to go forward. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's interesting because I think sometimes we think of our Christian faith as very personal and private almost. So to, to bring these kind of decisions to a group of people and then have them kind of be the, the filter and the discernment uh, for this decision seems significant. Yeah, I, th- I think there's lots of open doors, the, kind of sticking with your language that you're talking about. There's lots of open doors that, that, that come our way, and, and we've tended to have success when we've followed it through those open doors and not tried to, to kick a door through a wall or, or whatever. That we, we just, both my wife and I, every job that we've had has been kind of brought to us versus something that we've sought after. Um, and, and, and yet there's, there's opportunities that we've, we've turned down, that we've walked away from and said this, this isn't seemed to be, be the right thing. And I, I think really it is um, that process of, of being a community and having enough people that, that care about you and trust you and, and know you well enough to know if this seems like a good idea. Well, yeah, and the scriptures talk a lot about, you know, the, the wisdom and counsel of many, you know, that, mm-hmm. that help us along the way. It, you know, as you began this ministry, you were kind of in transition from the local church pastor into this launching, now launch, ministries. Mm-hmm. There must have been some fears along the way, you know, hurdles. They're like, oh, I don't know if we're ready for this. How did you kind of navigate those? Yeah, I think kind of the big fears, um, we had started a church before, um, but a nonprofit is a totally different animal. Um, there's no built-in, like, parishioners that are giving to a, a weekly offering, um, so there's no, like, built-in fundraising stream. Um, so figuring out how do you raise funds for a nonprofit, what are the legal things that you have to do, how do you, even working with the IRS and accounting and all, all sorts of different things that, that nonprofit has to do that, that uh, churches don't. So I think, for me, um, I tend to be uh, more visionary and less detailed, and so a lot of the, the fear was around how do you um, put the, the details and structures in place that, that um, you, need to, you need to in order to be successful. And then I think the other fear was when we're, I think a lot of times in a local church, we don't necessarily see or feel like we're dealing really with life and death um, kinds of things. Um, maybe we should have that idea a little bit more that this is something serious um, that, that we're doing, but we're dealing face-to-face with kids sleeping on the street and, and drug addiction and, and overdose and, and how we... Um, how we respond to those those situations um, can have actual life and death um, responses, and so for me, the other side of the fear was, uh, am I are we capable of meeting the needs of these kids, and what happens if we screw up? Um, and that that still keeps me up at, at night. Like, well, what we get, got a situation? What? How do I? Um, manage that and hope that, that things are, are going to turn out okay. And so I, I think with that, then as far as how we manage the fears, um, it's um, again building that that supportive community, people that that um, can reaffirm and, and know that yeah, this is this is the right way to go. Um, my coworker Jason is over there. He's he's a great sounding board. So it's like, okay, how, how do we handle this guy? <laughs> are we doing the right thing? Okay, yeah, we're doing the right thing. Um, it's good. Yeah, ministry is probably strongest when it's done in collaboration with others, right? That's why uh, Jesus sent people out in teams and two. Uh, we see Paul with his kind of compatriots in ministry. Yeah, it's kind of significant uh, model for ministry. Um, so students are listening to this. Uh, how might students kind of get involved uh, with what your, you know, your work and, and what kind of programs do you have that might be interesting to them? Yeah, so there's lots of volunteer opportunities. Our, our homeless youth drop-in center um, just recently expanded to be open five days a week in the afternoon. So we've got lots of volunteer stuff that we can do there. Um, we'd really like, though, um, rather than looking for volunteers, we, we really want, are here to, to talk about a service that we're offering. So we've just started a new group called Celebrate Recovery, which some of you may be familiar with. It's a nationwide um, recovery program. Um, it's basically a 12-step program condensed down into to eight principles um, with Jesus' 
as the center. So it's, a, it's instead of a higher power, we've got, we've got Jesus as the center. And it's really for any hurts, habits, and hang-ups is the language that we use around that. Um, so anything that you're struggling with, anything that you're um, addicted to, any, any um, stuff that, that maybe um, you're uncomfortable talking with, with people at Crown about, that you're looking for a safe space to, to um, kind of debrief and, and talk about that. Um, our particular group is focused on 18 to 29-year-olds. So a lot of recovery groups, um, you end up with a lot of 40, 50, 60-year-olds. And so that we really are intentionally keeping this to those under 30 so that um, you'll be able to resonate with the, the issues that they're facing. And so we would invite you to come out. Um, we've got information at the table and back. It's um, every Thursday night. Um, and you can talk to myself or Jason after the, the chapel today. Um, but we'd love to have students from Crown come and be part of that. Yeah, so, so students could talk to you if they want to volunteer. Volunteer, yeah. Um, and participate in some of the ministries, but also you have this ministry that might be of an interest to some of our students as well. So Absolutely. Yeah, well, very much. We thank you very much. Uh, appreciate you coming out and sharing with us your ministry. Students, if you are interested after chapel, feel free to stop by the booth, as he said, and uh, have a conversation and see where that might lead. So thank you, Corey. We appreciate it. Thanks. At this time, I want to invite Coach Hour up, who's going to introduce our speaker for the morning. Would you welcome Coach Hour? Thank you much. Uh, the, the young man that I'm going to introduce, I actually, we actually recruited him for two years. And so during that process, I got to know him as a young man, got to know about his family, got to know about all the different things that had happened in his past. And... You know, Wally's here, the same thing. But the, the biggest thing about him, and part of what he's going to speak about today, is this young man had tons of chances to give excuses into why not to succeed. And he chose to go down the path of putting those things behind him and make a success of his life. For us, he was four-year starter at cornerback. He was a captain for us. He's gone on now to where he's married, has two kids, is the Twin Cities Director of Act 6 Ministries. And so this is a young man who took some things that a lot of people would say, what was me about, and made a pretty good life for himself. And so I couldn't be any prouder to introduce our guest speaker, Marquise Dixon. Wow. I feel love. I can just feel the love flowing in the room today. It's great to be back. Um, this, is, this is so sweet for me. I remember sitting up there with the football guys and sitting up there and being like, man, I hope one day I can come down and speak at chapel. And lo and behold, here I am today. Um, there was four things I wanted to do when I was a student. I was like, okay, I wanted to play college football. Check. Um, I want to graduate, walk across the stage at the end of the year. Check. And I also wanted to come back and speak at chapel. So we'll see how this goes today, right? And fourth, don't tell President Wiggins, I wanted to come back. I wanted to be the first president of Crown College who was a person of color, right? So don't tell him that. That's, that's our secret. Um, I wish I had something to bribe you with. I don't. Betsy, if you're here, hook them up with some alumni stuff. You know they're not alumni yet. Speaking into existence, right? Shout out to Betsy. So I'm super excited to be here, and I just want to set some ground rules for you. Um, if you hear some hallelujahs, some amens, all right? I know that might be out of the norm for most of you. Don't be scared. It's completely normal. That's going to be coming from this area right here. <laughs> if you're wondering why, uh, it's because my mother's here and my aunt's here. And Southern Baptists, you know, they get after it, okay? <laughs> um, also, also, if you hear Queese 
Um, you know, some coaching advice. It might come from this section. I have the, ooh, that's probably kind of loud. I have the CEO of Urban Ventures and also the VP of Youth Programs here. So like I said, when I say I feel loved, I feel loved, y'all. But also, if you were to see a young curly-haired boy that comes up here and calls me daddy, I don't know who he is, okay? Um, just want to throw that out there. No matter if you might scream and yell, if you hear some baby cries, you might be coming over here in this section. I'm here today with my two kids, Malachi and Emerson, my lovely wife, Joelle. Um, as Coach Iris said, I have the pleasure and the privilege of being the director of an Act 6 program. And I'm blessed because I have three of my amazing scholars with me today. So they're here, they're showing me some love. I appreciate that. So I have two kids biologically, and I have 26 other amazing kids that are part of our leadership program. So I set the ground rules. So if you see anything coming out the way, some burps, some spit ups, some different things like that, don't be alarmed. It's totally all right. We got it covered. Um, today, I had the opportunity to talk to you about something that's very dear and near to my heart. Um, something that a lot of the kids I work with, um, they experience, and that's fatherlessness. Um, it's very real in today's culture. Um, I grew up without a father, and when he did come back in the picture, he wasn't the best example. So I'm going to share to you today about my father wound. And just to set the, set the premise for you, you may say, okay, well, father wound, I've never heard that analogy before. I want you to check out this clip, okay? And it's going to lay the foundation of what we're going to talk about today. So check this out. You a better man than me? You happy? Now, you're going to tell Will or not. I'm not going to do your dirty work for you. Fine. Uh, I'll call him from the road. Yeah, then why don't you do that? Yeah, I'll do that. Daddy-o! What's up? Will, <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, some business came up I got a handle. So we're going to have to put our, our trip on hold. You understand? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, that's, cool. that's cool. Just for a couple of weeks. Mm, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little longer. Yeah, whatever, whatever. Look, I'll, I'll call you next week and we'll iron out the details, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, yeah. It was great seeing you, son. You too, Lou. Yeah, um... I'm sorry, Will. <laughs> you know what, actually, this works out better for me. You know, the Slimmies of Summer come to class wearing next to nothing, you know what I'm Will, saying? Will, it's all right to be angry. Hey, well, why should I be mad? I'm saying, at least he said goodbye this time. I just wish I hadn't wasted my money buying this stupid present. I I'm sorry. I, you know, if there was... Something that I hey, can Hey, you know do. what? You ain't got to do no, nothing, Uncle Phil. Hey, you know, ain't like I'm still five years old, you know? Ain't like I'm going to be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home, you know? Who needs him? Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty damn good at it, too, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? Got through my first date without him, right? Mm. I learned how to drive. I learned how to shave. I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a damn card. Die with him! I ain't need him then, and I don't need him now. Well, well. Now, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. 
I'm gonna get a great job without him. I'm gonna marry me a beautiful honey, and I'm having me a whole bunch of kids. I'm gonna be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that, because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man? It's a powerful scene, isn't it? It's kind of hard to watch that without shedding a tear, especially if you've gone through that. Now, I'm going to talk to you about my father wound, but I just want to let you know that there are different types of wounds out there that may be caused by loved ones. It could be a mother wound. It could be a sibling wound. But in my case, it's a father wound. And no, this isn't a physical father wound that say my father put hands on me. It's more of a social, mental, more importantly, a spiritual wound. Socially, what our today culture says is, like Will said, hey, I'm going to go out there and marry me a fine honey, which I did. <laughs> Have some kids, right? Which I did. But it also says that you need to go out there and make a, get a good paying job, make a lot of money, which a good paying job is kind of important, especially when you have a family. But it, that job does not define who you are. And I feel like that's what our culture says, that you need to go out there, make the most money you possibly can, even if it means sacrificing time away from your family. And I'm here to let you know that that's not necessarily the case. There's different things that our culture says about being a, being a dad, right? I mean, it's, it's no surprise that today's, trying to, today's culture is trying to let us know and change what being a father is. Being a parent is. Obviously, you guys, you turn on the news, you see different things that are going on in the world. Um, laws being passed and different things, right? We've all seen it. But that social impact, I had the pleasure of working with one of my best friends. We came here to Crown, we roomed together, and for some reason I, be, I stayed his best friend, and I had the pleasure of working with him in South Minneapolis. He's actually the reason why I got turned into ministry. And he's a mentor, one of the best youth workers I know. And recently we went to go watch one of these young mentees play a football game. And at the football game, I mean, this is pound ball, Pop Warner, so I mean... You're lucky if they complete a pass an entire game because they're just running it. They're out there running around. It's very cute to watch. So we get there. After the game, this young man walks off the field, and he's looking to his left. He's looking to his right, and he sees his peers, and his peers have someone there with them to tell him, hey, good game, good pass, good catch, good drop, essentially, right? But you could see the look on his face. He was so broken because he didn't have anyone there to celebrate that moment with him. But as soon as he saw my buddy, he lit up, and he ran over to him. He was like, hey, did you see that play I made? And you could tell it made the world to them. And me, being a 27-year-old father, a man at that time, I could relate to that because I always wanted my father to be there, to see me make a play. I remember my junior year here at Crown College, playing corner. We're playing at a school called Trinity. First half, they threw a ball up. I somehow got lucky, and I caught it interception, and I remember, man, that was an amazing play, and we were heading off the field at halftime, and there, sitting at the concession, session, concession stand, was a guy by the name of Dr. Jay Steele. 
he looked at me. He was like, Marquise, great play. Great play. I've wanted that for so long. And that man over there, he was there. And he does not know how much that impacted me. I thank you, Dr. Still. I told myself I wasn't going to cry, so I got that out the way now, so let's keep this moving along, okay? <laughs> so, but also, there's different things, right, fellas? You can relate to this, knowing that you want that father, so you can tell him, hey, dad, guess what? I got my first crush, right? Hey, dad, I did this. Hey, dad, I did that. And sometimes I wasn't able to do that. My mother did the best she could to raise me, the best she could, and I'm blessed that she's here to see me today and better hear me speak. No, oh, I love you too, mommy. But there's also another man who played a significant role in my life. And he, I could sit down with him. I could talk to him about hard things. That was John Coach, Coach John Hour. And I remember going to his office countless times. And you know what the best part of what, about it was? It wasn't necessarily about football. It was about life. It was about stuff going at home. At this time, I had a cousin come over here and play ball with me. And we're, I remember we just going to his office. And we both gravitated toward both these men. Because in a sense, essentially, they were sitting in that gap, and they were filling that father role for us. And I love Coach Hour and the football players. You can relate to Coach Hour. He just, he shoots it straight with you, right? He doesn't hold back. He's an honest guy. I remember so many times I come into his office, he kicked me in the butt, say, you need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going on. You, you have to finish, Marquise. You have to finish. And he's played a significant role in my life. I'm glad he's here today. To hear me speak to this day, that's awesome. Even Dr. Steele, I was a history major. Any history majors in the house? Okay, maybe not. Um, <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, just act like I didn't say the last part. So I transferred in, so I didn't have to take many math classes because I got those all knocked out the way very early. But I ended up meeting Dr. Steele, and I remember, I said, okay, I'll, I'll take a stats class. Took it, did all right. But there was something about him that I just gravitated towards. So I remember going to his office and sitting down numerous times, not talking about school, but just talking about life. And it was amazing. And also, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. He's a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. So there's always those great battles we go back and, back and forth with as well. But through those conversations with both these men, I was able to see their heart. I could see them model it out. Both of them are fathers. Both of them are godly men. And they, they modeled it more than anything. And they used words to model it out when they had to. So socially, I wanted a father. I was very blessed that God put certain men in my life. Mentally, let's talk about this mental battle I was going on, right? So not having a father there and I see my friends get picked up by both parents. So I'm looking at them thinking, man, if I have both parents, everything will be all right. If daddy and mommy were together, maybe my mother wouldn't be sick. Or maybe if daddy and mommy were together, maybe we wouldn't get evicted at our house. Or maybe daddy and mommy were together, everything would be fine and dandy. But that wasn't the case. And then when I had my own kids, you can imagine how bad I beat myself up. So I said, like, wait a second. Okay, that's the little person right there. I'm supposed to parent you. Okay, There's, is there a playbook for this somewhere? Um, coach, play, no, no playbook. So mentally, I beat myself up, and I put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself. And I still, do to, I still do to this day. 
of like, how am I supposed to be a dad? How am I supposed to be a husband and love my wife? No one was there to model it out for me. Growing up, I remember my mother had her first stroke, and we got evicted from our apartment. And this was my first year playing football when I was in eighth grade. I remember going off to football practice, and my mom was just letting me know, hey, look, certain things are going on. We need to find a place to live. And there's this lady who just overheard our conversation. She was like, hey, look, I live right down the road. I got two kids of my own. Our kids are both in the same grade. You can come still live with us. You can come stay with us. I was like, what? Really? And we were in Atlanta, Georgia, so you know this ain't no Minnesota nice thing, right? <laughs> so, and it was amazing because that woman opened up her home. Wasn't related to me, but to this day, she's been closer to blood. And that lady's my Aunt Kathy, so she's here with me today as well. And that was when I was in eighth grade, and we still stayed in contact to this day. My mom loves her so much that we live with them. Um, you know, moving across town so I could go to a better high school. As soon as I graduated high school, y'all, I'm telling you, my mom moved back in with my Auntie Kathy. Then she was like, I guess I got to get my own place, right? So she, my mom went and bought her house. But guess what she did? She bought it across the street. <laughs> Closer to blood. Closer than blood to me. I love you, Auntie. But then there's also this, this, this spiritual side, right? I talked about the social impact mentally, this pressure of not actually having someone to look at and model it out for me growing up. Then there's the spiritual side, right? Okay, how, do, how am I supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church? How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to lead my kid in a godly way when daddy wasn't there? And that's when God came beside me and he's like, you know what, Marquise? I got you. I've been here this whole entire time. And one of the things, I was meeting with a buddy last week at a coffee shop, and I told him I was going to come here today and speak on this. So this is kind of funny. So I was trying to figure out a topic, what to talk about. And three different times during that day, I just felt like God affirmed me. I came in. I met with Coach Allen, and I said, hey, I'm going to talk about my father wound. He's like, oh, that's great. Do it. I was like, okay. Um, then I went into the billing office because everyone visits the billing office, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, one of my good friends I give her a hard time all the time. She's sitting up here in the front, Miss Ladine. Yes, Miss Ladine. So I, I just challenge you guys um, to go visit the billing office, register's office, financial aid office. I know those places you guys will never go, but they're actually great people inside there. And I go down there, I give them a hard time all the time. Isn't that right, Mrs. Bedford? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Side story. So real quick. So. After I graduated college, I came back. I worked here as an admissions counselor. I went down to financial aid, and I worked for a little while, right? So you hear the stories like, okay, what's going on in financial aid? Never really been down there before. So I go inside there, and you know I can't act, right? I can't act, right? I went inside there. Everyone started getting sick. So I started quarantining offices, and I'm starting putting up pictures. I wish I had the yellow tape, but I didn't quite have it. And I figured out that Miss Don, she was a huge, what was, what was the name of that game you used to play? Farm, Farmville? Zoo game, so she really loved it, and I was like, Miss Don, what you do this weekend? She's like, oh, I spent some time with the family, and I got to play my zoo game for a little bit. I was like, all right, okay, I never knew that. That's great. So, hey, I challenge you guys to stop by the billing and register's office and financially like, give them a hard time and tell them Marquise did it, and you'll get a pass, okay? So, there's this spiritual side to it, right? And God's telling me, like, Marquise, I've been with the whole entire time. But I was like, okay, God, you, you, you say that, but I need, I need to feel you. 
more importantly, I would love to see you. And after we had our oldest son, um, he was 11 months old. I remember he fell down. He split his channel on the coffee table. And we had to rush into the emergency room. So we're sitting there. We get us out of the room, and the, and the lady's telling us, it's not that bad. But you don't want these stitches. We'll just glue it shut. I was like, okay, cool. Just like, go ahead, glue it shut. And she looked at me, and she was like, well, we really encourage the parents to leave the room because we need to strap them to a board, and we're going to need to hold them down. I was like, whoa, wait a second. Those hand gestures didn't look that friendly. Um, let's back up a second. Let's redo that, okay? So strap them to hold them down. Like, why, why are you using your elbow? Why can't you just hold them down gently? So we, we got it worked out. So it's, it's all good. So I remember we stepped outside the room, and he's screaming bloody murder. And if there's any parents in the room, you know what it's like to have a young child. They look up to you for everything. You're their hero. There's nothing that mommy and daddy can't fix. But at this moment in time, guess what? Mommy and daddy couldn't fix it. So we sat there and we listened to him scream, mommy, daddy. And at that moment in time, I felt completely powerless. And I was like, son, if there's anything I could do to take away your pain, I would. If I had any type of power, I would. You know what? I would put myself in your shoes so you wouldn't have to go through it. And at that moment in time, I never felt the presence of God more than my life. Because at that moment in time, God said, Marquise, guess what? I did that for you. I offered my only son as your sacrifice. And guess what? I had the power to stop it as he was sitting on that cross. But I didn't because I loved you. I was like, whoa, hold up, God. Whoa. You just took this to a wholly different level. But, he, but do, you see, do you see that imagery there? Do you see that? Like, God loved us so much, he gave his only begotten son. And all this entire time, I'm sitting here looking for a father. He says, hey, a lot of times as Christians, we talk about God sent his son, Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins. But I feel like sometimes we forgot so that we can be adopted into his family and that we could have a heavenly father. So he, he reminded me, he said, Marquise, you remember socially when you're looking at different things and you see, turn on a computer, Computer, you look on social media, turn on TV, and you're wondering, you see all these sitcoms of happy families, and you think, that's what you want? He's like, no, I'm with you. I'm all that you need. Or Marquise, you know how you sit there and you're wondering, how are you going to be a father? And you're beating yourself up mentally, because you want to be the best parent you possibly can. You don't want to make the same mistakes that your father made. He's like, guess what? I'm the one that was there to comfort you. He's like, Marquise, you know when your son was center on that board, when they strapped him to it and they held him down, and you couldn't do anything? He's like, I'll let you experience in that so that you could see, get a little taste of what it's like for me to sacrifice my son for you. That's amazing, deep love right there. When I was writing this message, uh, I'm a huge hip-hop artist fan, but more importantly, Christian hip-hop. So, like, there's this guy by the name of Andy Minio. Y'all heard of him? Y'all know Andy? Right, and he was here just a couple of weeks ago. Me and him hung out, you know, we we're chopping up a little bit, had some cups of coffee, not really. Anyway, so there's this song he has, it's called Bitter. You know, ever heard the song called Bitter? Yes, yeah, some, a little bit. I, when you go back to your dorm rooms, I know you guys are going to go back to your dorms and everything. YouTube, Bitter by Andy Minio. And this song, Andy Minio talks about his father when he gives a little small example of what that looks like for him. And he uses such great imagery with his words of what it's like for him. So one of the lines in his song, he just talks about how 
it's so hard to forgive people, right? So, th- so that's the next part of this father one, right? So I talked about the, the social impact, the mental, the spiritual. But then there's this forgiveness part. Because ultimately, I have to forgive my father. We have to forgive the ones that inflicted the wound upon us in the first place. Then many, many talks about sometimes it's so hard for me to forgive. Then I remember I'm a sinner. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, that, that's true, right? So I can't hold this grudge against my father for so long. We can't hold the grudge against the people who have hurt us forever. Then he uses another line, and he talks about the power of love. It's so powerful that Jesus forgave the men who pinned him to the cross. Not a day later, not three days later, not years later, he forgave them while he was hanging from it. Think about that. Jesus forgave the very same men who pinned him to the cross as he was hanging from it. That's powerful. And that same thing is the same type of love I need to extend toward my father, and we need to extend toward the ones who have hurt us. But you know the amazing things about wounds are? Wounds heal, right? There's been some people here that have gotten scrapes, scratches, you needed stitches, and eventually that wound heals, and it scars over, right? That can be the same for internal wounds as well. But what happens to an untreated wound? That wound eventually festers. You can become bitter. You can start harboring harsh resentment toward a certain individual. So I had to start attending to my wounds. I had to make sure that my wounds scarred over. But you know the beautiful thing about a scar is? They have a story behind it, right? There's been some of you sitting in this very audience who've gotten scratched or you've gotten stitches and you have a scar. You're like, hey, man, check out this scar I got on my knee. Just had ACL surgery. Yeah, it ended up pretty rad. Um, hopefully it's rad, like, after two years later, after you fully recovered, right? But you want to show off, hey, I got that one while I was longboarding down from Faith, and I hit the speed bump, and I fell off. Check it out. <laughs> right? But the same thing is going to be said about our scars, especially our internal scars. Once, those, once they heal over, guess what? You can tell the story that came with it, and you can walk some along the journey of, hey, this is the person or the individual who afflicted this one upon me. Then I sought out help. I went to mentors, such as a John Hour or Dr. Steele, and I talked about it. I processed it. But then more importantly, I prayed to God that God would remove the roots of bitterness from my heart and allow me to forgive. But you know the awesome thing about these scars is, by you sharing your scars and your wounds with people, you may give them a little bit of hope. Another line of Anaminio's song, Bitter, he talks about hope is like a star. We don't see it shine bright until the dark comes. You never know how many people are actually walking in the dark right now looking for a little bit of hope. So I would challenge you to share your stories, share your scars with people, and you might give them a little bit of hope. And that little bit of hope might be that all that they need, okay? So I'm going to pray and give it over to Bill Kuhn. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this awesome group of amazing young men and young women, Heavenly Father. I ask you, Lord, that you would grab hold of their hearts now, Heavenly Father, and that you would use them for your kingdom, Heavenly Father, for your glory. I don't know what hurts, what pain, what bitterness, Lord, or what experiences they've gone through, Lord, but I know, Lord, that you are there to comfort them, guide them, and lead them throughout the process, Lord. I thank you for the faculty and staff members here at Crown College. Lord, I, when I say I felt love, I felt the love here, Lord, by them showing up so I could see their faces and their smiles. These same individuals can be the ones, Lord, that can help walk 
a student here, Lord, through the process of healing and recovery. Lord, you are so good to us, Lord. You are so good to us. I'm often reminded of Emmanuel with us, Lord, meaning with us. And I think about how, Lord, through all our ups and downs and trials and tribulations, you are with us throughout the whole entire process. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.